Yeah, I think you reach a certain point where you don't, it's like, you're not afraid of not getting the job anymore, which is a great place to be. I'm, I'm working on myself to, to just not be the, uh, the bitter 38-year-old director who thought he'd be accepting his Oscars anymore. So I'm trying to be a little, a little, a little more kind. Action. Welcome to Cinema Splash Page. I'm Michael Brody, and back in the early 2000s, I managed a couple of comic book shops and ran a couple of video stores too. Those were the days. Lately, I host a weekly radio program, publish the occasional short story, and spend my Sunday nights running a live show I call The Best Damn Trivia in Montreal. You can find me on stage asking some very silly questions every Sunday at 8pm at a place called Grumpy's Bar in downtown Montreal, Quebec. My guest today is Rob Grant, writer and director of my favorite film of 2019, Harpoon. What's that, you say? Isn't 2019 the year that Parasite won the Oscar for Best Picture? Surely you don't like Harpoon more than Parasite. Oh, but I do. In fact, I vastly prefer Harpoon to all the Best Picture nominees for that year, a list that includes Ford vs. Ferrari, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, 1917, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Personally, I had a much better time watching Harpoon than any of those other films, and unlike those Oscar nominees, Harpoon actually stayed with me, and I kept thinking about it for weeks after my first viewing. For those who haven't seen it, or who need a little refresher, here's the simple IMDb description of the film. Rivalries, dark secrets, and sexual tension emerge when three best friends find themselves stranded on a yacht in the middle of the ocean. I'll add this in regards to the movie. Harpoon is easily one of the most underrated films of the past few years. It excels at creating rising levels of tension fueled by treachery and escalating violence. It has a great Hitchcockian plot, fantastic dialogue, and bang-on performances from the three leads. It's a consistently engaging film filled with plenty of try-to-guess-what-happens-next moments and a deeply satisfying, if somewhat bittersweet, conclusion. Suffice it to say, I kinda liked it. Rob Grant, the writer and director of Harpoon, has kindly agreed to join us today. Rob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. You just welled my head so big I won't be able to fit through the door after this, so very much appreciate it. Uh, Rob, it's early, early morning as I speak to you where you are. What were you up to that got you up uh, at before 6 a.m. to get to work today? We were recording ADR for my uh, my my... I guess I could call it my day job. It's a post-supervisor, so a bunch of the shows that we do here in Vancouver require looping when we get bad audio, and uh, had to do a, a talent that was in Toronto this morning, so Vancouver time to Toronto is a little early. How do you uh, record uh, from Toronto to Vancouver? What's, what's the method? We're talking on Zoom, Ugh. but what do you guys use? Uh, well, we use Zoom to patch in, um, and then we have them, whatever studio we've in whatever city we're using, they'll usually just punch the feed through the Zoom for us, which is actually, before the pandemic, this kind of stuff was rarely used. And now I feel like it's the mainstream because now no one has to leave their house to monitor ADR, which is way better preferred. Well, you know, Rob, skimming through your IMDb page, you have quite a series of credits on a variety of things, not just the stuff you've directed, but of course, you've worked as an assistant editor, for instance, on a number of fairly well, some really high-profile movies. I, I don't know if you have anything to say about working on these productions, but I'm going to ask you about them anyway. Here, here's just some titles. If you have anything to say about them, jump in. If not, just say pass. <laughs> Got it. You have credits as an assistant editor on Deadpool 2. Yep. You, you might as well go through the list, and then I'll tell you how I jump from each one to the next. Sure. You've got Deadpool 2, Point Break, two Planet of the Apes movies, You've got an Uva Bowl movie called Assault on Wall Street, two Twilight films, <laughs> mm -hmm. and more, but that's plenty. Yeah, it's, but the way I got into the business was a little strange. When I got out of high school, I knew I wanted to make movies, so I enrolled in a film school here in Vancouver, except I found out how much I despised it. 
um, and wanted to be able to talk about stuff other than movies. Plus, my dad, it was a, at the time, I think he was a principal. So I just, he, he was always punched into my head to get a proper education. So I left after my first year film program and went and got a degree in philosophy with a minor in creative writing and archaeology just because of Indiana Jones. Uh, so, you are not the first person to say that. Yeah, exactly. So I knew the whole time while I was doing getting my degree because everyone's like philosophy. You're not. What are you going to become a philosopher? What's that good? And I always knew that I was going to get back to movies after the degree. But I just found that philosophy was giving me a, such a rich, uh, different way of looking at things that perhaps I wouldn't have gotten had I just stuck out at the film program. So I finished that. My and my dad actually he was kind of vehemently against me going into the program he or, or back into film kind of said i'll give you six months of re living rent free before you have to kind of find a real job quote unquote and then on the sixth month i got editing pa on cabin in the woods um so that was my first introduction into into the, the movie world proper well i'm certainly a fan of cabin in the woods yeah i got lucky because i i had volunteered just to, for like some day stuff as like a PA in not even on a production, but in the studio called Mammoth Studios here in Vancouver. And it was while in there that I saw the Cabin in the Woods team setting up their editing equipment. And I, I, I basically just asked, I was like, oh, I'm big into editing. How do, I, how do I get in here? And I just got very lucky because the original editing PA moved to Toronto. And then the second person they called was unavailable. And I was third on their list, having no credits doing it. So I got... Uh, Got lucky enough to be, I think at the time I was, what, 20, 23, 24, grabbing lunches and coffee for, for the editors. And that was kind of my, kind of my intro into, the, into the, the, the business. And it was through that that I got recommended for another show that was called Marmaduke, which was with 20th Century Fox. And it just so happened that I grew my bones with 20th Century Fox through that show as the editing PA. And I kept working with Fox every time they'd bring a show up to Vancouver for over about a four-year period until they eventually said, hey, how come we can't make you an assistant editor? And I had to tell them, well, in Vancouver, we have a union here called IATC 891. It's a catch-22. You have to have 60 hours as a union member to get hired as an assistant editor, but you can't be, get those hours unless you're already in the union. So it's like, it's really built to like, you only get your shot if everyone else in the city is completely hired. And at the time, there was only maybe one show every four months to, to jump on. So Fox did the coolest thing for me and they went to bat and said, okay, well, we'll hire you as our editing PA, but we're going to pay you as our assistant editor so that you can get your hours. And then the union found out about it, tried to kick me off the show and Fox went to bat and said, no, give me every list of available editors and we'll give you a reason for each one of them why Rob's the better hire. Um, and that's kind of how I got to assistant editing. Uh, and that kind of you know led to Planet of the Apes, uh, which then led to the second Planet of the Apes, where I got to be a previous editor with Matt Reeves before production even started. So it was just me, Matt, and the like previous Weta team in a dark room, kind of putting together all the anim animatic battle scenes before they were approved to shoot. So that was a really awesome experience to do that. I got to work as assistant editor for uh, Michael Kahn and Steven Spielberg on the BFG. Um, so I kind of grew up in that, in the post department with some really, really, really talented people who kind of were open enough and kind enough to give me, give me the, like take me under their wing. Like Roger Barton, who was one of the editors for Cameron on Titanic, and he'd bring me into the room uh, to kind of show me tricks. Um, Bill Hoy, who was Zack Snyder's editor and is now Matt Reeves' editor, formerly Vancouverite himself, and would always... Same thing. It's like I basically just made sure on each production that I was open to be like, I'm, I'm passionate about editing. I want to learn. And that's how they, uh, they would come to bat and give me help until I was able to start editing, getting hired for editing myself. And then I started doing, you know, the interesting thing for Canadians up here in Vancouver is you're kind of tied to whatever's being brought, either brought up and editing and finishing in Vancouver or a lot of our lower end TV stuff like the Hallmarks, the Lifetimes and more of just like, you know, the feeder content. Uh, there isn't a lot of, in, there's not a lot of good indie scenes here to kind of cut your teeth to, to do those. And then all the big stuff, obviously they bring the editors up from LA. So it's a bit of a strange spot to be in editing, but I'm such a homebody for Vancouver. I'm passionate about my city that I kind of 
refused to move down to LA to further that career. So between editing that stuff up here, doing my own projects, uh, and then my dad getting sick in 2018 with cancer, I decided to take a step back from the editing room and switched to being a post-supervisor where I could do the job from anywhere while taking care of him. And that's kind of how, how I ended up where I am now, where it's now instead of being in the editing room, I'm responsible for a couple editing rooms and making sure that they're, they're running smoothly for, for various uh, studios here in Vancouver. So that's my short, long way of how I kind of climbed through the ranks on my side. Wow. And so I guess you really have a for real nine to five day job now. Yep. Well, it's not even nine to five. It's kind of 24 or seven. If, you know, if, if uh, a show that's shooting in production has an issue with the dailies in the middle of the night, we're the first call because we're the ones that need to solve the issue. Same for on set. So it's, uh, yeah, I basically traded out. The reason I had to get out of the editing department when my dad was sick is like, if you're not in the chair editing when the show needs, meets its deadlines, the show fails and you, you can't be responsible for that, right? Like my last show was... Uh, CBS uh, cop drama and it was during that where I would have to like you know fight with my inner self to be like I have to get up and go to the hospital versus uh, finishing my duties as the editor because I have a director in the room and I I just made a decision in that moment I'm like I can't I can't do this to myself and have not edited uh, a show for hire other than what my any of my friends projects since and it's, the trade-off was, yeah, now I have to be available more often, but at least I can do it from wherever. And I kind of appreciated that trade-off because I'm saving a lot of my creative energies for my friend's work or mine. Uh, well, what I was going to say was, uh, I mean, that is that is a really, really full-time job, which, which means I am delighted that you've managed to carve out a career in this and that you're making some sense of uh, trying to find essentially a paycheck in this sort of industry. But it, it definitely won't leave you a ton of time to do your own projects. That's the, that's the other balance, right? And I think what I learned in my 20s was, and I get, this is a lucky because my editing career versus my directing career were very splintered and fractured in a very positive way. Like back when I was editing PA, right? You'd do a show. But then you'd have four months off waiting for the next show to come. So what do you do? Fill your time. Oh, let's go shoot something with the money we just made. And that's kind of how my first movie, the zombie movie shot on 16 millimeter called Yesterday kind of happened is we were just bored in between shows and were able to afford this thing. And it just so happened, I'd, you know, I'd go work on a project and then I'd go shoot a project. I'd work on a project and I'd shoot a project. And that's how it went from a good 10 years until it, the content wars really kicked up and streaming services really kicked up. And now it's 24-7 in probably, I'm sure it's the same in LA, in like Louisiana, in all of the, Atlanta, all the major cities. It's like there's no downtime uh, in between shows. It's like if there's not a movie, there's a TV show. If there's not a TV show, there's a streaming movie. It's just, it's nonstop. Like I think Hallmark Channel shoots it's something like 100 movies a year now. Uh, it's, 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 everyone needs to justify you know, the, the monthly fee. So it's, uh, the amount of content now is, so it, it is a harder balance, right? But I think what I learned that helped my directing career was that I was able to say no to projects, not for financial benefit. Like the, the roof over my head wasn't at the mercy of me saying yes to any directing uh, or editing gig. And I found that in the beginning, you're always like, well, why isn't everyone just offering me every directing gig under the sun? You get a little bitter as a 20 year old, uh, even an early 30 year old. But I think as I've aged, I've come to find that how much of an asset that was to me to that, that my, yeah, my, my rent was not tied to me saying yes to any old movie and I've saved it. And that's probably, it's been a benefit in that I now get to make whatever I want or nothing at all. And it, but it's also led to me to be making really wild movies that are not for everyone, and I had to accept the truth that you know I'm not uh, I'm not making these four quadrant projects that are, will be accepted by everyone. So it's it's a, it's been a, it's the last couple of years, especially with extra time to think during uh, the pandemic, uh, it's given me a lot a lot to think about in the benefits and cons of the career that I've chosen stubbornly, um, and and the way that I want to do it, and that I find. Um, necessary to survive in this business. 
Well, you um, you were mentioning before that your first film, the, the 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 zombie movie that you started off with, was shot on sixteen millimeter, which is amazing because you were right on the cusp of the digital con the digital switch. Mm -hmm. Everyone started yeah. shooting digital. It's I liken it to you you bought a taxi medallion right as uber came in yeah nope that's a pretty fair analogy uh because it certainly costs more but at the time the big hot digital camera was the dvx 100 a or b one of those two and i just uh, that to me wasn't i was trying to make like a romero like an ode to a romero zombie movie not like because at the time it was the new dawn of the dead uh 28 days later is all the fast zombie stuff which don't get me wrong i love both those movies but i grew up with you know the original Dawn of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead were like that. The slow terror was much more my style, and um, because it became less about the zombies and more about the madness and people. So I kind of knew that I needed it to look something like that, and I couldn't figure out a way to make that happen with a DVX 100. And I just so happened at the time had like some connections with it, the last film processing studio in vancouver and i knew it was going the way of the dinosaur and i'm like look if i don't do this now i'm gonna regret it forever and i think the funny thing is is the movie's terrible like that's a 20 a 21 year old made a really bad movie but i think people recognize the effort that we tried putting into it in the shooting a film in trying to make this old school homage that without it being like you know I think what happened after that was the grindhouse phase where it's like adding on the fake the fake filters and scratches and everything and I think people just recognized that we were trying to be honest in what we were doing and that that I think gave us more recognition and press than the quality of the film itself for better or worse but I I don't regret that decision at all. Very cool. I mean you you came up using old school tech which I don't care what people say it still generates a better result. Uh, the people still shooting on film, the the three that still yeah. exist, yeah. the quality of the image they're getting is still better than the best video I've seen. I, that's the th and that's I mean I get, it's getting there better now, but certainly I'm I've I've really gotten big into a lot of the studios that are doing remasters of like lost and forgotten movies. Um, who did? The DVDs, some or the, the sorry, the Blu-ray somewhere across my room, our office right now. But there, someone did a remaster of Possession. I'm aware the uh, the Andre, the guy that did on the Sil on the Silver Globe, I believe. But he, yeah, like you watch that remastered, and you're like, oh, this looks better than movies now do, and it's because that film is doesn't degrade. I mean, as long as it's kept well and stuff. But it's like the image is the image, and it's always going to be beautiful if it's shot and exposed well and i think even my wife like i'll be like oh i've got this new remastered of like an old like ken loach film or something like that and it's like she's like jesus this looks like it was done yesterday i'm like i know it's crazy and i think there's something to that that is a little lost like i you know i did put on 28 days later on my 4k tv the other day and i'm like oof like this is a little tough to watch on the big screen now but again that movie's so well like, I think the images are so well composed and defined in that movie that you let it go because it's, it, it, you know, he knew exactly what he was trying to do there. Yeah, I've heard this before that when it comes to um, every time they shoot a movie now using a different, a different kind of, uh, of digital film, they have to, while archiving the film, include the machine that will play it because there's a chance by the time they get around to going back to it, those won't exist anymore. Yep, that does not surprise me. I mean, what we, we do is put it on LTO tape stock, which is like a magnetic tape that lasts for 30 years. So as long as no one throws out those, whatever reads the LTOs, yeah, we should be fine. But yeah, we've had to unarchive a few shows, and it's like, the, the, it's not just the movie you need to back up. You need to make sure the Hero dailies, like the log, the Rec 7, and like all the different, the LUTs, everything's captured. Because, yeah, when you pull it all out, it, people down the road are going to be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> uh, well, Rob, uh, on this, this show, generally, we, we don't just go through someone's filmography and their work one by one. What I like to try to do is speak to people about the things that influence and inspire them. So why don't you give us a title of something? I mean, you've, you've, you've gotten started. You already mentioned a couple of zombie pictures. Give us a title of something that means something to you or that 
somehow influenced a piece of work you've done. I can certainly say starting like one of the first scares of my life was the original Night of the Living Dead with the uh, little girl and the trowel in the basement. I vividly remember having to like leave the room. That used to be my technique, but I used to do that with not even non-horror movies. The Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when he drinks the wrong cup and it gets aged really fast and turns into basically a dust pile of dust. I used to have to run out of the room for the, that too. So that's like, those are like the seminal scary moments that I can recall instantly from my childhood. I can say the, the first movie that made me want to make films myself was a very vivid experience where my dad was taking me to the movie theater in, and this is in 1992 and I'm aging myself a little bit here, but I was, it would have been grade two at the time. And my dad and me went to see Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Now, that's not the movie. I'll pause you there. That's not the movie. But while we were there, in the queue, on the wall was a poster with a guy sitting on a motorcycle bathed in blue with one red eye. And I went, Dad, I want to see that. And he goes, I do too. <laughs> and so in grade two, um, my dad and me sat through Terminator 2 in the theater, and I didn't even know what the F word meant at the time. Like, the swear words didn't even register. I was so young. It was going over my head, and my dad it later in life said, I looked a little strange taking a grade two-year-old to that movie at the time. But that one changed my life in the sense that there was, like, my life before that, and, like, oh, here's something that you could try and do, because what I saw on screen was, like, the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And still to this day, when I watch that movie, I get that excitement, that feeling of being like, I need to go out and make something. And that's the one that kind of stuck with me the most, I'd say, right from the earliest one I can remember. But I guess I can go other directions with it, too, where I think the reason that a lot of my movies had a lot, have a lot of people talking in them is that I've, I got interested very early in movies that were similar to stage plays. Like, I remember seeing uh, Before Sunrise for the first time and thinking, like, this, a movie could be like this? Like, this, isn't, this is the opposite of Terminator 2. I'm trying to think of other ones similar to that, where it's just my dinner with Andre. Like I started falling in love with, yeah, more ones that were more cerebral and where the plot was revealed through character crisis. And I think I got lucky in that I fell in love with those types of movies as well, because while I wanted to make the big spectacle ones, I, I really, I, I found that I was also, especially when I started writing my own stuff, was just interjecting these two opposite sides of of. of plot and character development and story and it's it's been to my benefit because I've, i enjoy those the most and i don't really see those all that often but or what's being made now i should say but that certainly influenced me in a different way of than i think perhaps had i just stuck with the terminator 2s of the world <laughs> you'd be making very different movies there's two things i want to mention one uh you mentioned terminator 2 and seeing it as a second grader and yeah I honestly don't think there's a better movie to see when you're that age because that is almost a two-hour essay on what it is like to play with giant Tonka trucks. Yeah. There were so many sequences I saw in Terminator 2 where I just imagined James Cameron standing in a room with a bunch of toy cars saying, and what if we throw it this way? And what if this one jumps over that one? And there's yeah. like 15 sequences in the film that had to have been developed that way. Yeah, no doubt. For him to be able to get, I just, I'm always blown away because Terminator is a great low budget movie. What he was able to do with the budget and the way that looks, because that, that 4K also it looks like it was shot yesterday at night in LA without big lights. It blows my mind. And then to take that movie and then turn it into Terminator 2, reverse the hero, the villain, make the, the sweet missing father story and arguably one of the greatest female uh, leads of the in in movie history it's like it i don't know i have a hard time not going like how the hell did you do this we talked a little you talked a little bit about uh getting into films with a lot of dialogue and a lot of character development like the Before Sunrise trilogy of those films. Uh, so let's let's jump in a little bit to your work and your writing because uh, writing-wise, your film Harpoon was very much up my, my alley in terms of how you wrote it. You have these <laughs> tense character scenes, these interesting bits of information 
including scientific facts and history that are sprinkled throughout the plot. Mm -hmm. You jump into sailing superstitions like don't kill seagulls, no redheads on the boat. And just one by one, they're influential to what drives that story. And uh, of course, you have the discussion of survival times without food or water and blood poisoning and of course, cannibalism. I loved how you just weaved all that into this tense, uh, let's call it a love triangle, which is, that is that film. Mm -hmm. What, what exactly, uh, this is the usual question for a piece like this. What inspired you to write Harpoon? Uh, being stuck on my friend's boat here in Vancouver, actually. We, you know, Vancouver's a coastal town. Uh, a lot of outdoor activities. My friend has a real, or had at the time, a really ring, a rundown rinky dink motorboat and we got caught out with the engine dying at night and we couldn't figure out how long it was going to take for the coast guard to come give us a tow and i remember just thinking i was like oh this could go really wrong if if circumstances were different out here because it didn't take long for the people that were on the boat all drunk by the way to really start making piss poor decisions like we thought it was just the battery that died right similar to how in harpoon and then one person kept trying to still plug in their iPod to play music. And I'm like, what are you doing? And I just, I remember taking in all this information and be like, oh, people don't really act appropriately in what could be very dangerous situations. And it did turn out. Any, a few people have tried coming to me saying that the uh, fuse box in Harpoon, spoiler alert, is bullshit. And I always like to refer to them, nope, that's exactly how we got stuck. It wasn't pulled by a nefarious person. The fuse melted. And then the Coast Guard came to inspect the boat. They crumpled up a piece of tinfoil, stuck it back in, and started the engine for us. Wow. What, what an easy fix your movie could have used. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I was dealing with, I, was, like, I knew that I had a set. So I, this was, and my writing process is fairly strange. Like, I knew that I had a setting, like in a premise. And I couldn't, but I couldn't figure out how I wanted it to be told. Because I also, I had already known about the Richard Parker uh, coincidence from just an earlier anecdote. And so I had all these little tidbits of information and I knew the setting of I wanted people inept at survival surviving because, you know, I'm used to seeing the opposite, like The Edge with Anthony Hopkins. It's like there's always those movies where it's like you got the guy who's like the intrepid survivalist who can make a compass out of uh, water in a leaf and a, and a magnetized um, needle. And it's just like, I want to do the opposite. I want to see people in in survival situations that absolutely have absolutely no idea what they're doing because that's i feel like 99 percent of the population so i kept building on just these ideas over i'd say over a three-year period until I, I can't remember what it was that clicked but i think i had just figured i think i'd figured out what my pitch was and it was i wanted to do polanski's knife in the water by way of seinfeld characters and as soon as i had figured out that pitch just that one sentence pitch I kind of knew what I was doing and I was able to just sit down and write out the entire thing in like a four week period. It came out like the easiest writing I've ever done because I like that was the through line for me. It's like anytime I was like concerned about this a, a tense situation, I just thought about how would the Seinfeld characters handle this and it kind of got me through to the next thing. And then of course my pro producing partner, Mike Peterson helped me, you know, kind of polish it up over the next maybe month or so. But I think in October, I wrote the script and by February we were shooting. So it was like the turnaround for it was crazy and there was no really time to second guess or question a lot of the decisions. We kind of just barreled forward with it thinking we had something interesting here and that's, that was kind of where it came from. You brought up the Richard Parker plot point in Harpoon running through it and I, I, you know, the history behind the name Richard Parker, its place in nautical history. Were you at all concerned about Life of Pi casting too big of a shadow over that aspect of your film? Because the tiger in Life of Pi is named Richard Parker, based on the same nautical history, which you do mention in the mm -hmm. movie. I just wondered if it worried you at all, because Life of Pi is, again, it casts a giant shadow. Uh, no, I actually, I use that to legitimize the story more, in that if Life of Pi was willing to do a callback to this insane historical coincidence then it, it it only helped when i my characters talk about it and that's why i actually made sure to reference life of pi in it is because most people when they hear that story call bullshit and i just wanted to make sure i'm like no no this all happened yeah i'm a big fan of that that story point <laughs> all right well why don't you give us another film that inspired or influenced you 
I'll say City of God is probably my most watched movie in my entire life. Uh, so much so that I should probably know Portuguese to this point. Every time I hear City of God in the back of my mind, I go, the Patrick Swayze movie? And then you go, oh, no, wait, that's City of Joy. <laughs> Very different films. And of course, I do know what City of God is. Yeah. Why don't you uh, just quickly mention what the plot of City of God is and then tell me what your experience with it was like. Um, it's based on a true biography of a photographer that grew up in the favelas of Rio de, Rio de Janeiro. And it's basically about it, really the formation of the city right from the original row housing and dirt roads all the way through to modern, not modern day anymore, I guess, but I think in the 90s when it was, you know, a real drug hotspot. I don't, I just, I remember seeing that movie for the first time and the way that it told, because a lot of people before that movie was made said that book was unfilmable because it's such a meandering plot. And I remember, again, it's another one of those things where the medium was so different from most other things that I've seen that I was like, oh, you can make movies like this. It's another one of those shifts in my brain where like, oh, you can suddenly do sideways story cuts, time cuts backwards. You can run an entire, an entire history of an apartment from a, one camera montage inside of an apartment like it just it broke so many rules the editing as well it would do jump edits mid dialogue and conversation it's like all the things that you were taught that i was taught in that first year film school it broke all those rules and i go it's one of those things where you're like oh there are no rules you can do whatever you want as long as it's cohesive and makes sense and engaging and it yeah, that, uh, it's, it's one of the greatest movies of all time, in my opinion. I just gave it a quick look up to remind myself. It's actually directed by two people. It's uh, Fernando Mireille, who went on to do, among other things, The Constant Gardener. Yeah. And Blindness. Isn't Blindness a Canadian film? I don't know if it's Canadian. It was shot. I don't know where it was shot, but it's... Um, I can't remember her name, but yeah, everyone's going blind and stuff like that. It, uh, it features Don McKellar, so that's why I immediately just assume it's a Canadian movie. Yeah, that would, be, that would not surprise me. And the second director is Katja Lund, who also went on to do other work. Different work, though, not quite as uh, high profile as The Constant Gardener. Yeah. Uh, she's the second unit assistant director on Anaconda. Yeah, I don't know what happened with her, because it seems like City of God is her last directing gig. She's still working, different things over yeah. the years. Uh, a, a TV thing called City of Men. Oh, okay. So that's the TV show that they did a spinoff of the movie after, which is fantastic as well. It uses a lot of the young kids that they had as like the little grommets in City of God as the leads in City of Men, which is really interesting. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, he also worked on City of Men, mm -hmm. Fernando Murray. That's just great, though, when two people work on a movie as co-directors and then one of them goes off and has a great career and the other one vanishes into obscurity it's always annoying mm -hmm. you have that moment of realizing but you did such great work and this person got all of the spotlight but it's always nice to see that they both wound up having careers beyond that yeah absolutely All right, well, why don't you hit us up with another title of something that means something to you? You know what? I'll t here's an obscure one, and I, I defend this movie to the bitter end, and it's called A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints. I'm aware of it. And it's uh, Ditto Montel or Montiel. I don't, can never remember how to pronounce it. Now, I, I had read his, his book with a biography that it's based on. I, I read it after, actually, now that I think about it. So I saw that movie on, I think I got it in like a bargain bin DVD like in like a pawn shop or something like that. I put it on and I think I only got it because it was one of the first movies where uh, Robert Downey Jr. was kind of like starting to come back. And he's the, does the opening thing in that movie. Again, the form changed because it's a, meant to be a biography based on this book, but they do really interesting stuff. Like just cuts to black for no reason. Like again, jump edits, all this weird stuff that doesn't, you're told not to do. I just, found the movie super um, romantic towards a, a pastime, but while still being honest and like gritty and true. It's, like, it's kind of one of those movies where life is shit, but it's okay. And I just, for whatever reason, I was very drawn to the editing style, the, the soundtrack, uh, soundtrack and the, um, the score actually, which was really, 
subtle ambience. It was just more like these ambient tones for most of it, like glass almost sounds. Uh, and uh, Robert Downey Jr. was terrific. I thought that was the first movie where we saw Channing Tatum, and I went, holy shit, who's this guy? And the same for, uh, I think that was right when Shia LaBeouf was kind of making his come, come out as like a serious actor. I just remember thinking, I'm like, this, this is the type of movie I'd, I'd love to make. It di- of course, it, it didn't go anywhere. No one saw it, and very few people know about it, so that's right up my alley, apparently. But yeah, that's, a, that's another one where I just remember seeing it being like, I'm really, it's the, the ones that make you inspired to try stuff that most movies maybe don't. Well, because this movie came out in 2006 and uh, Robert Downey Jr. was sort of coming out of his difficult period and he's in the same film with Shia LaBeouf, it's almost like he passed along all of his personal difficulties <laughs> yeah. and Shia just took the mantle and ran with it. Yeah, that sounds about right. And fun, what's, the, what's the common link here is between both of them is both child actors. So I think the rules is don't do be child actor. Uh, you hear that over and over and over with only a couple of exceptions i hear that shirley temple turned out great (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly her and judy garland it was nothing but positive yeah no no issues at all uh (laughs) yeah dito montel uh of course this is this is the movie that's based on his life and robert downey jr in fact plays dito montel in this film Mm -hmm. and shia labeouf plays the same guy younger mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of fascinating channing tatum went on to make multiple movies with him or at least appear in yeah, smaller parts I, in a lot of his I, films I, I might be wrong but i think that's like channing tatum's first or second movie it's like it's way way back there for sure yeah 2006 is pretty early it's just it's it's one of those movies where it's, it, even if the plot's kind of meandering there's not much there like you're so enthralled by the commitment from the talent that that's kind of what i think maybe drew me in well you were talking about different kinds of storytelling involved in this and in uh, city of god i noticed some interesting cuts in uh, in your film harpoon especially the time jumps which are essentially chapters mm-hmm. in the movie you often have a character say well then i guess we're gonna do x and it just cuts to a title card informing you it did not go that way mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a fun i mean it's pure comedy in a lot of ways in a movie that's a thriller so you do have all these thriller remnants but you have so much black comedy in that film so it's um especially that well there's that big moment where they talk about what should we do should we wait for rescue and they gauge the odds someone will run across them and they say ah 90 10 90 10 that we're someone will see us and it literally that's the the title card it cuts to something along the lines of uh, five days later no one has seen them. Yeah, yeah. That's that. To, that came directly from the rule that Jer- Jerry Seinfeld used in 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 his show. It's like whatever these characters want, do not give it to them. Or if they get it, it has to be it has to be a detriment to their life. And I kind of just use that as the general rule of of the movie. That's a perfect plot system. I, well, I think that's, yeah, what is, I think that is like a, what's supposed to be called that general rule to um, conflict. But I, it, for whatever reason, I just found it funnier that it was like, an, in, like, like slap the hand. The second it wants something, just slap it down right away. Don't even give them a chance. Like slap it down. Like, so I kind of just use that as my rule. Oh, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't have thought Seinfeld would be the place to go to for good plot advice, but absolutely. Yeah. I mean, let's just move on to more stuff you love. Just speaking of things that you're in your first year of film school and they go, how many of you want to be directors? And, you know, 90% of their people put their hand up and you know, the odds are so far against you that I knew very early that I was going to focus on editing. And so even watching movies, I would just kind of with an eye for editing rather than even writing or directing. And I think one of the most influential directors for me for editing was um, Oliver Stone. You know, between JFK and Natural Born Killers, again, that guy breaks every rule that you're taught between, you know, jump cuts, cutting to different color schemes and, you know, going from color to black and white, um, going to animation. Like, he just, he didn't give any fucks. Sorry if I'm swearing. I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. Oh, please. As much, as much swearing as you'll give yeah. us, we'll take. The, the second I get to Oliver Stone, I, the swears come out. Yeah. Um, I just, between those two movies, like I, 
say what you want about the director and who he is now, but th that guy was revolutionary in studio filmmaking at a time where not a lot of experimenting was happening. Natural Born Killers will never happen again under a studio system with A-list actors <laughs> and be released theatrically. Like that movie is such an anomaly in what it is and represents and an attack on everyone. The funny thing is that people got so offended because of his attack on the media system and it went exactly the way he predicted it would. It's like more sensationalized now than it ever you could possibly imagine. So between that and JFK, just the way that those movies, and I think he used editing as a system for emotion. It's not just the acting, but he would actually edit to make you either feel uneasy or the excited. Like the, the stuff he was doing is so advanced because he won, he won three different editors Oscars. So it's obviously that he has some secret sauce in how a movie should feel and cut. And I just, when I think about those movies, they have, they, there's such a confident tone in both of them that this is the ride that I'm putting you on. Like buckle up that that's kind of what I took from that is like, this is, this is the ride that I want you to be put on. You might not like it, but tough, tough luck. And I, w I wish he'd get back to that, but he might just be too old. What fascinates me about Oliver Stone is his, the earliest part of his career when he was not working out as a director, but was in fact getting a lot of success as a writer. Yeah. So his earliest work, of course, he wrote Midnight Express, Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, yeah. <laughs> Year of the Dragon, and Eight Million Ways to Die. And what a bunch of those movies have in common, specifically Conan, uh, Scarface, and Eight Million Ways to Die is, I doubt there's a word that actually appears on screen that he wrote in those films because <laughs> they were so messed with. I've, I've been reliably informed that nothing he did on Conan is in the movie. I wouldn't be surprised by that. Scarface, I, I'm certain though those speeches are his. Like there's a, there's a certain element to the, to the Oliver Stone speech. <laughs> no, very much so. Uh, and of course, infamously, the last Hal Ashby movie, A Million Ways to Die was a clusterfuck of a production yeah. involving throwing out the script at nearly every sequence and just having the actors ad-lib the weirdest stuff. Yeah. I feel so bad that that is the final Hal Ashby movie, but to be fair, they took it away from him and edited it without his permission. Yeah. Never, never the best <laughs> outcome of anything. Have you had any issues with uh, people taking decisions out of your hands on your own films? Ooh, that's an interesting segue. <laughs> yeah, I'd say I have one movie in my filmography that is a colossal regret. And um, it's, I don't know if I even need to say the title, but it's Alive. And it's the, my first and, and will be my last director for a hire movie. And, you know, I'm not going to throw people under the bus because I'm culpable in the sense that I thought I could shape it into something better than what it was. And my and I wasn't this I was not able to do that so I am certainly part of the blame but that's that's a movie where certain decisions were not in my hands to make well just just for fun give us the one line synopsis of alive and I'm gonna ask you a question about it uh two people in, with amnesia wake up in a derelict hospital and they can't figure out why their caretaker is is doing the things to them that is, he's doing so when I saw Alive, my thought was there are some semi-famous people in it. So I assume it was your highest budget movie. Is that, is that right, maybe? Um, I don't think it's any different than Harpoon, if I'm being honest. That would have been my question. It's between the two of them, I didn't know. It all depended on where you made it. I think it's pretty similar, and I can tell you the truth. They're both very low budget. I had a feeling. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I understand. Um, I, I, I saw Alive... And I, I, I watched it through and I thought, this is not the same kind of vision I saw in Harpoon. And it has this incredibly overt ending. It's just, hey, guess what the ending is? Yeah. Blam! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and guess that was not your first choice of how to end that story. I would have been fine with that ending if we were allowed to do better things that built to the ending earlier. Yeah, I, I would not have even brought that up had you not said, I had a lot of issues on this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, so that, but there's the thing, it's a, it's a learning lesson, right? It's like, 
it, without that movie, because after that, I was like, I'll never be able to do another movie. Like, that's it. And then my, luckily my producer, Mike, said, well, if you had one more shot, what would you do? And I said, I have this weird movie on a boat where three, with three people that I don't think anyone will watch. And he said, okay, write it and send it. Send me the script. And it's because of my experiences on Alive that I threw everything in my power into Harpoon. All the things that I was afraid to try to do, to say, um, I threw into that movie because they put the fear of God in me. And so I don't regret the experience. It's left me with a lot of things to watch out for and not do a, a, a second time. Well, once Harpoon was released, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the reception was like, but after it was released, were you ever in the running for other projects based on someone seeing your movie and recognizing how well you handled the directing on it? I'll give you the love-hate outcome of that was Harpoon is when we first finished the movie and started submitting it to festivals because, you know, as a small indie, that's your only ticket to get any recognition and to help sell the movie. So, you, like, that's the thing that I actually have a big gripe with the industry is, and the festivals know this, is that our livelihood is so innately tied to some exposure at these festivals that I think they need to take that a little bit more serious. But when we submitted, everyone said no. And I mean across the board, top tier, middle tier, bottom tier festivals. Across the board, everyone said no. Until on Christmas, December 24th, I woke up to an email from Rotterdam Film Festival, which is... Europe's biggest art house festival uh, saying we'd like you to screen there. So that our premiere, like uh, Gaspar Noé's new movie was premiering there. I was like, we have no business being at this film festival, but we premiered there. And suddenly a bunch of the people that said no started saying yes again. And so I, was, I went through the whole release of this movie a little um, embittered in that I was like, Guys, we were this close to this movie not seeing the light of day. And then because this one tastemaker said yes, you guys all said yes. Like, I just, I got really bitter and jaded about that experience, uh, if I'm being perfectly honest. And it made me say that this was going to be my last movie because I can't, I don't want to have to rely on the success of a film being on, on, on luck, right? Because the whole time you're like getting all these no's. I was like, I know there's some movie here that some people might want to see. Why is everyone saying fucking no? Like, I just didn't understand it. And so I really did take a step back from, from wanting to do another one. I was like, you know what? This will like during the whole festival run, I kept being like, you know what? I might, this might be my last run. I'll just ride off into the sunset now that it's getting some good reviews. We're making, you know, GQ's top 10 list. I was like, okay, I've done it. I've done what I needed to do. It got re the recognition it needed. You know, I don't want to put myself through this again. And um, I, uh, I slowly after that, like, I started to warm up to the idea of doing another one, but under my, my conditions and my rules. Is there a way that I could do this and not put myself through the horrible back end of not knowing if it's going to get out there? And for a little while, we actually did have a project with CAA, who, yeah, again, called me out of the blue, being like, hey, I, we saw your movie, we loved your movie, what do you got next? And I was like, well technically nothing, but I've had this other one that I've been noodling with. And we started developing that project together. And then right as we were about to, like, as we were speaking with cast that were a, like AA listers that I think would have sold the movie before it even got made, the pandemic hit and everything shut down. So right when I thought about getting back out there and thinking that I had a way to do a movie with cast enough that would give it eyes regardless. And basically I was trying to sidestep the festivals. I was trying to be like, okay, I'll, if I get enough good cast, I don't need the festivals. The movie will, people will want to see it. So I kind of had that ready to go. And then the pandemic hit and I completely detached from the idea of making movies because I, it's like, well, I, I have no idea how to do this in a pandemic environment. Like, I don't know how you can test people and keep this in a bubble. So for about two years, pretty much till mid 2021, I was just decided I wasn't going to do anything. But for whatever reason, the funniest thing happened during the pandemic is Harpoon kind of made more rounds, like it got a second life. And I don't know whether it's because it's three people trapped together, the same people, same way we all were uh, in houses and apartments and condos. But it, I started getting more calls and messages from studios and um, creatives being like, what do you have next? And um, I don't know if it was because of my cat, like lazy attitude about it being like, well, I've got nothing right now. Cause we're all 
technically supposed to be staying home that it kind of people like i just i think i like people now understand what i was what i'm trying to do and it's like i want to do my own projects otherwise not at all and um it's kind of led to some more interesting um relationships with some of the studios and stuff like that like harpoon only did me more favors during the pandemic and yeah i feel like because of that i was i've been allowed to an opportunity to kind of do another another movie that we're working on right now actually so well, that's great. I mean, it's it's certainly nice to hear that it was at the very least a stepping stone to the future and not just a dead end. Exactly. Yeah, that's it's a funny thing because like I'm so not used to, especially in Canada, it's a little bit different. I don't mean this to be a whine, but in Canada, we're we're very removed from like the cool kids down in 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 the states, especially at the festival level. So finally to come out of the pandemic and telling my producer that he's like, "Dude, I have conversations with studios and creatives down in the states all the time that know all about you and loved harpoon and i'm like that blows my mind because it's the complete opposite of what we were before was was the weird canadians so it's 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 been very positive <laughs> that's phenomenal i mean i for one would like another film from you and i would really love it if you made another movie with the type of character work the plot being doled out a little at a time. I like any movie where while I'm watching it, I literally have to say, well, now what? Yeah. And I go through the ideas in my mind. And it, of course, it's always nice when you're watching something, you start to get out, oh, maybe it'll go here. And they take a left turn. Yeah. So, All right. Well, now I need to readjust. Now what? Any movie that makes me keep saying out loud, well, now what? Is a great film for me. I appreciate that. Well, my big thing is, you know, especially now with, our ADD culture and the cell phones and distractions, it's very easy to not to watch a movie and be distracted and not really fully pay attention, especially because you don't really have to pay for them. It's like, it's disposable, right? I still treat movies like my church. It's like if me and my wife are sitting to watch a movie, the phones are off and you know, so it's like the focus is on the movie. And I could always tell on some of the reviews that I would get from Harpoon if people were not paying attention. And I just am a big fan of movies that require your full attention because that seems to me the point. No, it is amazing when you read a review and your review of someone's review is, you didn't watch this. Yeah, or you, you were certainly not paying close attention because the thing that you're complaining about was revealed by these people talking at this exact moment. There is an amazing level of laziness in research and paying attention in, in people putting out product and saying, here's what I think about this thing that I have no no reason to be commenting on. Yeah. It's, it's become the uh, comments at the bottom of a post culture. Mm -hmm. And some people are calling themselves professionals while doing that. It's a bit difficult for me too. Uh, so yeah, it's a, that's, that, that's the battle, right? Is, and I think we're starting to see people say, Hey, this is actually really detrimental to our mental health. Uh, maybe we need to take a step back, but it's a, uh, you know, how do you, how do you put the, how you put the thing back in the box? That's the big question. Well, as you were saying before, that um, it's you, you make an effort to sit down and watch things, and there are people who do not. Mm -hmm. I still remember a couple of years ago, one of the major cinema chains pre-pandemic was weighing the option of allowing their, their entire line of theaters to allow cell phones to be in use the entire time movies were on. That would drive me nuts. Because they thought, well, these kids aren't going to come in unless they're told they can stare at their phones the whole time a movie is I mean, I get that. I get that they're dying and that they need to do something. But yeah, you think maybe the marketing would be like, hey, t kids, here's a two-hour break from your fucking phones instead of the other way. That's exactly how I take it. It is, it is astonishing to me that that is what the norm of the culture now is half paying attention to what is happening because you are about 80% paying attention to what's on your phone. I've literally had conversations with people standing in front of me, holding their phone between us yeah. and saying, don't worry, I'm listening to you while yeah. clearly not listening. Yeah, no, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know what the solution is, but it's certainly not more of the same. No, uh, I do agree with you when it comes to film. I want people to watch these things and give it their attention. I mean, there's a reason there's a thing called TikTok. Yeah. If you want TikTok, use TikTok. If you want to watch a feature length movie 
like The Godfather, or uh, I'll give a much more recent example of a movie that absolutely requires you to at least be present, is uh, Mike Flanagan's Doctor Sleep, which yeah. is three hours long and slow-paced. You cannot watch that movie while being half-distracted, because you yeah. will consistently look up and go, I don't get it, where are we? Yeah, no, I like that movie a lot, actually. Uh, it just keeps coming up for me in recent times of a it's a very interesting director's cut because the theatrical cut is 30 40 minutes shorter i don't think i've seen the director's cut oh well the director's cut is three hours and it is chapter based the theatrical is not chapter based also it is one of those films where when you see the longer cut you go Every single thing you cut was integral to this story working. Wow, good thing it's I got, all the all I the got, character I gotta, beats. I'm gonna have to watch that. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to give him props because that's some big friggin' shoes to fill. And I thought tonally he did it very well. But yeah, director's cut. I do need to. Well, because the original Shining's in chapters. They're not called chapters, but when you go Monday, Tuesday, like that's a chapter. Uh, no, I think he did the impossible on that movie because. My very first criticism of a sequel to The Shining is, I do not want a sequel to The Shining. Yeah. And then he comes in and he tells an 85% new story. I mean, of course, yeah. this is Stephen King. Stephen King came in and said, well, let's just tell an entirely new story about Danny. And then it does, of course, converge back into the plot of The Shining. But he, it does such a good job of inventing new characters and giving us new issues to resolve that. Yeah. I have no complaints about that movie. Yeah. And he gave us this nice shout-out for Harpoon, so I got nothing but good things to say about him. Oh, I had no idea. Mike Flanagan gave you guys a good review somewhere? He uh, did his, like, um, movies, his pandemic, like, movies overlooked or something list. Yeah, something like that. And he put uh, Harpoon on it. It was really nice of him. You know when you're watching a movie and you say to yourself, I'm really enjoying this. Please don't fuck up the last 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I had that feeling throughout the whole last third of Harpoon. I was thinking, I'm really enjoying this film and the tension. And if it's just going somewhere dumb, I'm going to be so angry at the end. <laughs> yeah. And when we get around to the three or four plot twists that occurred, I was like, well, that one works for me. Oh, this one works for me. Oh, yet another one works for me. I did want to uh, give you a shout out for one thing in particular that you did in Harpoon, which was, it, it's hard not to get into spoilers. Well, I'm going to spoil something hugely without being specific, which is there is a throat slash <laughs> in Harpoon. And one of the problems with doing a throat slash in any movie, a thriller, a horror movie or anything is it's been done a million times to the point where I'm going to use a very recent example. There was a film that came out a couple of months ago called Sick, a Kevin Williamson horror movie. And it's not a bad film. It's, it's kind of fun in its own trashy exploitation way. But the movie opens with a long, tense sequence that ends with a throat slash. Mm. And it is the most generic throat slash you have ever seen. And it's the, the button to a 10-minute sequence. Yeah. And when I saw it, I thought, well, what are you doing? Why would you have yet another generic murder moment in a movie where you're you're just getting rolling so the movie harpoon largely builds up to this throat slash scene which is horrifically uncomfortable <laughs> what what you accomplished in your because it goes on and on and in a movie that's had a little blood here and there and some violence this is grand guignol level gore you you rip someone apart and the movie has so earned it by that point yeah <laughs> i can say that my uh my um makeup effects team really hated me for for requesting that style of throat rip because they they originally did come to me with like the classic slit bleeding slit that you just lean back and i was like oh no this is a jagged bottle guys it's like tear this guy's throat off and they're like yeah we had to look up some really disturbing photos on on the internet of actual like crime scenes so it's like my bad the reality is you created a sequence in which i gave a damn and didn't just think dumb movie trick it's it's a tom savini level effect from the best part of his career so uh, i applaud you i think you guys made the right choice and it 
really cements giving a damn about what happens to these characters. I appreciate that. Yeah, that was a, it was, there's certainly, I don't know if it was articulated as well as, or as eloquently as you said, but I certainly knew that there'd be a letdown if it wasn't the most catastrophic uh, injury we could possibly show. As I said, other movies tend to do it in a very offhanded, you forget it two minutes after it happens kind of way. This was, no, that's, that's going to stay with me. That was awful. <laughs> you do something truly terrible to a character and I'm going to remember it. Whereas it's very dismissive to inflict violence in a film and have it be cartoonish. Yeah, absolutely. Um, by the way, with very few exceptions, this being one of them, I usually hate narration in movies. But Brett Gelman, Gelman's bits in this are so much fun that it really works here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we, uh, the, the narrator was there. Well, first of all, I have to say I can't stand people that are like, oh, narration's such a cheap trick because my two like some of my favorite movies all use them like goodfellas is arguably the best narration city of god uses narration i was like i don't get why the, the hate's there but the reason those ones are so effective is because it doesn't explain to you what you're seeing on screen it's anecdotes and that's more conversational so that was part of why i needed to do it is because i got three friends who are like longtime best friends and i can't stand expositional dialogue between bold friends where the, you do the like Hey, remember when we did this thing like back then? It's like friends don't talk that way. They just banter. And so I needed this narrator to get their backstory out of the way so they would allow the characters to act like friends. So that was number one why I needed it. And two is I needed to give the audience an excuse to laugh because without it, people had no, like we did a bunch of test screens. People had no fucking clue what kind of movie we were making. So we made sure that this narrator had this his tongue firmly in his cheek the whole time, so people knew to not take us too serious. Well, I was talking about Brett Gelman. How did you get him involved in the film? We were, we knew that the movie needed, a, like, help's the wrong word, but they, we'd be better off if there was a little something extra to kind of get us over the hump. So, like, we tossed a few names around John Cleese at one point we were talking to. Like, we just needed some sardonic, satirical, sassy person and then brett gelman came across our list and we're like oh that would be an interesting one and we got lucky because it was just before he popped big on stranger things so you know it's like I, that was one of the just good luck for us that you know we thought that he'd make a great fit it turned out he was a great fit he knew exactly what we were trying to go for and uh yeah it just we got lucky with that one i, I even like the the nod to the fact that this is post-production audio within the narration. <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, he, his swears are, are, are bleeped, but the, but the movie itself, they cuss for openly and freely. That's, that's a, that again was just me trying all the things that I wanted to do because you, like the movie technically doesn't break the fourth wall, but it kind of does through the narration. And I just felt like, there's just all these things I just wanted to try and like for better or worse, like I stuck to my guns. My producer allowed me to do these weird ass things. And yeah, like I said, if that was my last possible chance at a movie, I just wanted to be satisfied that I was trying an experiment with the form. Like the one thing that I do, I have to remind myself constantly is that this is a hundred year old art form. It's very, very young, but guess what? It's feeling a lot more stagnant and stale than a lot of the older art forms. And I feel it's our duty to try to push it forward or in a different direction than what we're seeing. Um, and I think there's a real crisis in Hollywood right now due to that fucking book, Save the Cat, in that everything's very, 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 very formulaic. So I feel like part of it was me just flipping the bird to the form a little bit. Uh, do you have any other movies you want to shout out before we run out of time? Uh, I'll give you uh, Dazed and Confused and Stand By Me as my last two, mostly because, again, going, going back to um, personal crisis in, in two very different tones, actually. You know, it's, where, it's basically where the plot's kind of a MacGuffin, like whether it's throwing a, a beer bust or going to see a dead body. It's really about these people finding out something about themselves that they would have otherwise not considered. 
And I use that very, 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 I take that very much to heart because I think for a lot of movies nowadays and people think the plot's everything, right? Where it's about the personal, the personal growth kind of becomes secondary. So I've used those very much as my guiding light. Now, Stand By Me, I think, I think what makes it so endearing to me, at least, and, and everlasting, or that it still holds up, is that the kids don't act like kids. Their conversations and their, and their interactions with the, one another and the world is not that of, like, 12-year-olds. At least not now, I guess. But, you know, when I watch that movie, I go, oh, the, this director is treating these kids like adults. And he's giving them agency and is allowing them to make all these decisions. They're smoking cigarettes. They're play, playing poker and gambling. It's like they're not being kids. And I find... Perhaps it's not the truth, but it certainly makes for a more nostalgic look back than being like, of course I was that sophisticated as a kid. I, you know, we had this all figured out. We could go camping on a three-day road trip with just s'mores and, and, and sleep out under this. It's just, just something about that movie where I feel like when I watch what's supposed to be those types of movies nowadays, people, maybe it's just because I'm getting old or I'm out of touch with society now because i'm not a big social media guy it's like people it just feels now like their kids are acting like kids and i don't want it i don't want to watch that <laughs> well step by me came out in 1986 but it couldn't be closer to the 70s style of storytelling in that what i want to say about it is it's a movie that doesn't just take chances it is a dangerous film in so many ways i think yeah we've gotten away from characters being allowed to be flawed and or not just like broken, but like, I, I don't mean that in a negative way, but like, there's something to be said that we all have our negative attributes, and I don't think there's anything wrong with recognizing those. Yeah.